Jesus, in the New Testament, throughout all the Gospels, spends a lot of time trying to correct misconceptions about who he is and what he is trying to do. And what I wanted to talk about this evening is an account that's in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, where Jesus is majorly misunderstood by his three core disciples, Peter, James, and John. And that would be the transfiguration. I was going to read this from one of the Gospels, but I thought it's quick enough that I want to just start off and read through all three. So beginning with the Matthew account, which is Matthew 17, we're going to read the first nine verses of Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up unto a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with them. Then Peter said unto them, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. And while he yet spake, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and they were afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And then he lifted up their eyes, and they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell this vision to no man until the Son of Man has been risen again from the dead. So the parallel to this is in... Mark chapter 9, so Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. And after six days, Jesus taketh them up, Peter and James and John, and leadeth them unto a high mountain apart for themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceedingly white as snow, as no fuller on earth can make them. And there appeared unto Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered him and said, Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make thee tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say. He didn't know what to say. For they were sore afraid. There was a cloud that was overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly... When they had looked around about, they saw no man there, save Jesus and themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man these things that they had seen until the Son of Man was risen from the dead. So one more. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And it came to pass... 
about eight days after these things, that Peter and John and James went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there was with him two men, who were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. But Peter said that they were with him were heavy, were asleep. And when they were awake and saw his glory, then the two men stood with him. And it came to pass that they departed from him. And Peter said unto his master, It is good for us to be here. Let us make the tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, not knowing what he had said. And while he thus spoke, there came a cloud that overshadowed them, and they feared that they had entered the cloud. And then a voice from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice had passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close. It told no man in those days any of the things which they had seen. So, we're going to make a couple surface level observations. Let's just be honest and say this is kind of weird. We don't, we don't have dead people showing up very often in the New Testament. You know, the examples are, of course, Jesus and, uh, and uh, Lazarus. But those are specific, you know, resurrections. We don't have this force ghost thing uh, going on with, like we have here. And I tend to think of the force ghosts. You know, you know you've got Obi-Wan Kenobi coming to... Uh, give counsel to Luke Skywalker. Um, and this is two massive heroes of the faith, faith just showing up. Um, this was something that Jesus had a very intentional purpose, for whatever reason, of sharing with just his closest disciples. So much so that once it was said and done, and this is consistent for all three accounts, he says, all right, guys, don't tell anybody else, okay? Not until after I'm resurrected. And a couple of the accounts, they go on to be like, resurrected? What does he mean by that? Um, but just the core group. And it's clear that they didn't know what was going on. And I don't want to be too hard on them because I don't think any of us necessarily would have known what was going on. Somehow or other, they were able to identify that these two uh, figures were Moses and Elijah. I don't know if they were wearing name tags or something, but they were able to know that this was Moses and Elijah somehow. And then they get a little starstruck, especially Peter. Peter says... Hey, this is great. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. Obviously wanting to make some sort of an equivalence between Jesus and these, these Old Testament patriarchs. Well... It's very rare that you can make a statement that's so boneheaded that God feels the need to correct you audibly from the cloud. 
But these, Peter managed to do that. And so God says, no, 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 no. This is my son. Okay? Listen to him. And I don't want to put words in God's mouth because that's a dangerous place to be. But to me, it's clear that this is my son. Listen to him over and above Moses and Elijah. Okay? So, why Moses? Why Elijah? And if you look at both of those characters, you'll see they have their mountain experiences too. It's the same mountain, not the same mountain that Jesus was on, but Moses and Elijah both go to the same mountain, Mount Sinai. And if you remember... uh, Moses goes to Mount Sinai, he's receiving the law, he goes up, he comes back, he's got these nice shiny tablets with the law inscribed on it by the very finger of God, and here's Aaron, he's built a golden calf. He wasn't gone for all that long, at least the account doesn't seem to give you that impression that he was gone for very long, and you know... Moses clearly doesn't take it this way very well, or the Lord doesn't take it very well. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee, of Moses, a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why dost thou wax hot against my people, which thou hast brought forth from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And so Moses and God are not too pleased with, with this idol that was made while Moses was receiving the law. He's receiving God's instruction for the children of Israel. And they're building an idol and disregarding God in that way. But, you know, Moses pleads with God and God relents and he continues with the children of Israel. It shouldn't be lost on us from that account that the law that Moses was going to see. You can kind of see the veneer already being peeled off, even at that early stage, that this law is not going to be enough to hold the human heart back from its idolatry. The human heart will find and make idols of anything we choose to place our focus on, And while Moses was going to get the law, the children of Israel fell into idolatry. In Galatians, Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness could have come by the law, then Christ died in vain. So we see from Moses, the great lawgiver of the Old Testament, that the law wasn't going to cut it, was never going to cut it. Now, 
Elijah went to mountain too. So if you remember with Elijah, he'd just had the showdown of all showdowns with the prophets of Baal, decided to throw water on the altar and have God, just to make it more impressive that God could let light this altar on fire now that's been completely doused with water. That was great. That was a, 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 a victory, a, a big win for, for Elijah, um, but it put a target on his back. Um, Jezebel was none too happy, and she said, Elijah, I'm going to have your head. So he flees. God led him to Mount Horeb, and uh, a lot of Old Testament scholars would tell you that Sinai and Horeb are uh, two names for the same place. So the very mountain of God where Moses receives the law, and he was absolutely distraught. And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword, and even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. I don't think this is Elijah actually complaining so much as he is just gut-wrenched. You know, it seemed to be a victory for him with the prophets of Baal. And then he finds himself on his run for his life. And God brings him to the mountain and reveals himself to be a still small voice and tells him Elijah you're not alone not only are you not alone because I'm with you you're not alone because there are still 8,000 people in Israel who haven't bent the knee to Baal you're not seeing the forest through the trees but the point was taken though that we've got the law that will never be able on its own to rid us of our idolatries we've got the prophets whose primary job is to call us back to the law and here we have this greatest of prophets from the Old Testament saying I'm a failure. This, this is not working. Because it's not. And it never would. You can always kill the prophets um, as they were attempting to do. Now, I just called Elijah the greatest prophet, but Jesus disagrees. Um, And up until that point, um, up until the events of the New Testament, Israel probably would have generally said Elijah was the greatest prophet. But verily I say unto you, among them that were born of woman, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Not greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding that he, at least in the kingdom, at least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he, And from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. 
For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this Elias, which was for me. So, there was a generally held belief, and if you look at, I believe it's the Matthew account of the Transfiguration, where they, they have a debate about this, that the children of Israel were waiting for a return of Elijah. And then Jesus says, oh, we had that. That guy who was wearing the camel skins and eating the bugs, that was Elijah. He, he was the new Elijah. But as a matter of fact, he was better than Elijah. And a large part of why he was better than Elijah is because he was heralding the Messiah. I mean, that kind of puts you a notch above all of the other prophets who are just calling you back to the law. He was heralding God coming to earth to redeem his people. So for both Moses and Elijah, Sinai showed some of the fissures, some of those cracks in the veneer as to why the law and the prophets were never going to be sufficient. The law cannot contain our propensity for building idols. The prophets that try to call us back to the law can always be run down and killed. We needed something better, and Jesus is that something better. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second, for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, said the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their mind, and I will write it in their hearts, and they, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest." Moses and Elijah come to Jesus shortly before Jesus' story was to be culminated in the cross, in the burial, and in the resurrection. They come to Jesus to pass the torch. Here we have a testimony of all that has been accomplished through out the Old Testament and the old stories being laid at Jesus' feet. They have their fulfillment in Jesus. God, who at sundry times, this is also from my previous passage back here, was from Hebrews. And Hebrews, obviously, is the the epistle to the Jewish people. So it makes sense that the writer of Hebrews would, would focus on these sorts of things. Um, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake 
into the time past and to the fathers and prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom he hath made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and the upholding of all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The um, express image of his person. That is a uh, Greek word called hypostasis. Jesus is the hypostasis. It's in the Greek, it is a connotation of the clearest picture. So if you can think of um, a, an image that's fuzzy, it's the, the clearest possible uh, image is the hypostasis. Jesus is the hypostasis or the clearest image of who God is. So clearly we're dealing with something that's wholly other than uh, the law and the prophets. But the law and the prophets give homage to him. It's good for us to be here. You know, the, the phrase, it is good for us to be here, was very consistent. It was in all three of those synoptic gospel accounts of the transfiguration it's Peter saying hey it's great that we're here let's get to work and build some tabernacles it was good for them to be there um, but not for why Peter was saying obviously uh, God wasn't going to go for them building tabernacles but Peter did eventually get it in, in Peter's, uh, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. And he's talking about, you know, the gospel as a cunningly devised fable. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he receiveth from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. It was good for Peter and James and John to be there because, A, we have this story now. And it's a story that speaks to the culmination of scriptures and the culmination of God's operation uh, through his people throughout the ages. But um, so not to make, again, not to make Jesus and Elijah co-equals as Peter had suggested in the text, but to acknowledge that Jesus is the very substance of God's glory and the culmination of God's plan for our redemption. It's also good for 
us to be here. It's good for us to be here in the church, in this community, amongst one another. But it's also good for us to be here dwelling for a little bit on this account of the transfiguration. And the reason why is because this text is an acknowledgement of who Jesus is as the pinnacle of what God was trying to accomplish for our redemption. A place of acknowledgement that outside of Him, there is no law that can dissuade us from our idolatries and no prophet that can call us to repentance. In Christ alone is our redemption. So, it is good for us to be here. And I don't know what, what everyone's going through, but I know what, what my temptation can sometimes be, is to try and do everything myself. And try to get by on my own bootstraps and my own human efforts. But is that not attempting to get by without Christ and in some sort of a law or moralistic standard? When Christ says, Come unto me, all ye that, are la- that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's given us the church so we can rely on one another and carry each other's burdens. Don't try to go it alone. Don't try to earn your way when it's already been paid. And maybe you haven't accepted the payment, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe you're trying to earn your way before God, spinning your wheels because you have not accepted that Jesus has paid the way for you. So, I would encourage all of us to acknowledge, maybe for the first time, but in our daily lives, acknowledge who Christ is. Acknowledge what He has done for us and how we owe our lives to Him and we follow Him. We're not following our own human efforts and we're not following... uh, some sort of a, a prophetic call to our human efforts.